And unless you understand this passage fully, you're not going to understand, first of all, generational curses. But even more than that, you're never going to fully understand the Christian faith. Because here God reveals his very nature to the entire world. And his nature is something that the world has a hard time accepting. And so we're going through this today so that we'll understand exactly who God is and what his nature is really like. Because people are prone to take and say, uh, well, God is this way and he could never be this way or he is this way and he could never be this way. And people want to choose one aspect of God and say he could never be the other way. And yet in this passage, he reveals himself in his entirety to us. And we've got to understand this before we can understand anything else about the Christian faith. And so uh, let's begin. Exodus 34, 1 through 10. The sheer fact uh, that Exodus 34 exists is a proof that God is a God of mercy. I mean, if you look back at the chapters before, you'll see that this is the second time that God has met Moses on the mountain to make covenant with the people of Israel. When Moses came down from the mountain the first time, the people had fallen in love with the works of their own hands, an idol. They were worshiping a golden calf. The covenant that God made with the people on the mountain that first time went like this. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But instead of resting in the value of God, the people became restless and they, they craved the value of their own workmanship. They exchanged the glory of the invisible God for the image of their own glory, a golden calf. They had seen, well, they had seen his power. You know, they had been unbelieving at the Red Sea. They had grumbled against God in the wilderness. And so this rebellion with the golden cow should have ended God's patience, don't you think? You'd think that he'd say, just enough with this stiff-necked people. But here we are in chapter 34 on the mountain again, awaiting the revelation of God. And the people have not been destroyed. The sheer fact of this meeting is proof that God is merciful. But there's something even more amazing than the sheer fact that God is willing to meet with Moses again and renew the covenant, namely the content of what he reveals. Exodus 34, 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with Moses there and proclaimed 
the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. God cries out in verse 6, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he spells out the meaning of that name in words whose sweetness has never, ever been surpassed. Not even in the New Testament because it is connected to the New Testament. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is Yahweh, the Lord, the God who is, the God who is free, the God who is mighty and the God who is merciful. There's a connection between his absolute existence and his sovereign freedom and his omnipotence and overflowing mercy. But before we zero in on this, we see two problems in this passage that have troubled people for years. And this is what we need to get the bottom of today. And that is this, who God does and does not forgive. First, after declaring the fact that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, the scripture goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the problem is, how can he forgive the guilty and yet not clear the guilty? Or another way of looking at it, who are the guilty he forgives and who are the guilty he refuses to forgive? That's the dilemma that some people see here. And the most fruitful way that I think you can find is to let the Bible be the commentary on the Bible, not your friends and neighbors. That's what's happened. So many times we have not looked to God's word to make his word clear. We just take our own hopes and then our opinions and then we get with others and we try to reshape God's word into what we want it to be. And then you know what? You've got your own golden calf. You're no longer worshiping the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh. And so as we look at this, we're going to see that these things make perfect sense. The most fruitful way is, uh, is to look at Joel, talking about not me, talking about the prophet Joel and Jonah as examples. First in, in Joel 2, 12 through 13. God says to this rebellious people, Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. And Joel goes on to encourage the people, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repents of evil. In other words, what Joel is saying, 
He is quoting Exodus 34, 6 to encourage the people that if they will return to the Lord, he will turn away from the evil that he's about to bring upon them. So the assumption is that the people whom the Lord will not forgive are the unrepentant people who will not return to God with all their heart. That's the way Joel understood Exodus 34, 5 through 7. You see, forgiveness is for the repentant. It's for the repentant. It's not for whoever is unrepentant. It's only for those who repent. And understand that repentance, it's made clear, is not just feeling bad about what you've done. It's resolving you're not going to do it anymore. It's turning and going another way, getting on another path than the path that you've been on. The refusal of forgiveness is for the unrepentant. Do you see that? Okay. Uh, Jonah also comes to the same conclusion, really. He already had the same conclusions. That's why he ran from God. Uh, you see, uh, after he preaches to the Ninevites, what do they do? They repent, don't they? They repent. And then what does God do when they repented? He spared them, didn't he? And Jonah is angry at God for being so merciful. And uh, listen to what he says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarsh Tarshish. For I knew that thou art. And listen to what Jonah says. A gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repentance of evil. So here Jonah quotes Exodus 34, 6 to explain why God had turned his wrath away from a sinful people uh, who repented from their evil way. This is God's nature. It is his name. It's who he is. But notice that Jonah agrees uh, with Joel that whether God forgives the Ninevites or not depends on whether or not the Ninevites repent and turn from their evil ways. Now let's get back to uh, God uh, on Mount Sinai in Exodus uh, 34, 6 through 7. You see, on the one hand, the Lord says, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. On the other hand, he says that he will not clear the guilty. And yet all sinners are guilty, aren't they? I mean, you can't be a sinner and not be guilty. So which guilty ones will he forgive? And which guilty ones will he not forgive? The answer of Joel and Jonah is that he will forgive the guilty 
who turn from their sin and turn to God with their whole heart. And the guilty who spurn his offer of mercy, he will by no means clear. That's the first problem and the solution of Jonah and Joel. Now, the second problem that we see and that a lot of people have comes from uh, the next words in verse seven. And this is the heart of uh, these two sermons that I'm giving. It says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children up to the third and fourth generation. And we're going to see that this is a scriptural and a spiritual principle. Ezekiel says, though, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So how can these two texts keep from contradicting each other? Uh, The most crucial thing to see is that Ezekiel has in view a son or a child who does not follow in the sinful footsteps of his parent. But Exodus has in view children who continue in their parents' sinful footsteps. Ezekiel 18, 19 says, When the son has done what is lawful and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. In other words, he won't die for his father's sins because he's not following in his father's footsteps. He's going another way. But the parallel to Exodus 34, 7 in Exodus 20, verse 5 says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, the children share in the father's punishment because they share in the father's sins. Okay? So Ezekiel teaches that any child that turns from the sinful ways of his father and obeys God will not be punished for the sins of his father. And Exodus teaches that any child that goes on sinning like his father will share the father's punishment. When God visits the sins of the fathers on the children, he doesn't punish sinless children for the sins of their fathers. He simply lets the effects of the father's sins take their natural course, infecting and corrupting the hearts of their children. For parents who love their children, this is one of the most sobering texts in all the Bible. And this is where generational curses come into play. And this is why we need to be aware of these and we need to be looking at them. You see, the more we let sin get the upper hand in our own lives, the more our children are going to suffer for it. Sin, you see, is like a contagious disease. My children don't suffer because I have it. They catch it from me and suffer because they have it. Now, those with those two problems behind us, I hope we can hear 
the message of God's mercy with a fresh appreciation. Let's go back to verse 6 and the declaration of God's name. The Lord comes down and proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. There are two kinds of people who uh, uh, are hard to help in pastoral counseling, I've discovered. One thinks that they've gone too far to be forgiven. They think that they can never be accepted by God. And I've had, I've had people join the church saying, I know I've just done too much to ever even go to heaven. But just to be in the house of the Lord and to follow his ways are so much better than the way I was going before. Even though I can't be God's person, I want to be among God's people. And they thought that they were too far. I remember one guy, he started out there. He got in. God just loved him into the kingdom. The next thing you know, he was campaigning to be lay leader of the church. I mean, he just came full circle. And uh, that's just it. There are some that think they've gone too far. I have had another church member that told me at one point, after he had been excommunicated from his church, he decided that he just, since he was going to go to hell, there's nothing he could do about it. He may as well grease the chute, and is the way that he put it. And so he just went into a life of sin. And then he met a guy that told him about God's love and the depth of it. He discovered that there's no sin God will not forgive. There's no person God will not take back. But there are others who think that forgiveness is a snap. Uh, So here's one that thinks that he's utterly disqualified for the kingdom. And the other thinks that he's a shoe-in for the kingdom. And the one thinks God is unbendingly wrathful. And the other thinks that God's just a pushover. That's not the way God revealed himself, is it? And yet that's what people take this passage. They will take one side or the other or they'll reject the entire Old Testament and say that they believe in a God of love uh, and mercy and grace and not a God that punishes sin. And then they have a real problem with the cross and they don't want to have anything to do with the cross. And so, uh, but you see, the way that God reveals himself here to Moses is in full accord with the God we see revealed on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, one is blind to the magnificence of God's mercy, and the other is blind to the magnitude of his own misery. I know I face people in both categories nearly every Sunday morning, if not here, people who listen uh, in other places. And the challenge is preaching in, in preaching is how to speak hopefully to the first person without giving strokes to the second person. Because both sides have their ears sealed to the truth. And all that we can do is just pray that God will take the stopper out of their ears 
and the hardness away from their heart so they can hear the full and whole message of God. When a large and varied congregation is addressed, there must be wrath and mercy, threat and promise, warning and comfort. And then there must be prayer uh, and the work of the Holy Spirit to cause the word to be heard in its proper application to each person's need. But I want to be extremely explicit this morning that what I have to say now is for the downcast. It's for the humbled, for the broken, for the hopeless, for the discouraged, for the ones that feel that they may be beyond uh, uh, God's reach of forgiveness. That's who I'm talking about and talking to at this point in time. If I want to make clear to my children that I intended to be their father and take care of them and treat them with mercy, I might use two or three different expressions and perhaps repeat myself to stress the truth of what I'm saying. And God does the same thing. He condescends to use our devices to make his mercy perfectly clear. He piles phrase upon phrase to lay open his heart of love. And they fall into five expressions that we hear right here in this passage we read this morning. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The more one considers how these five descriptions of God are related, the more you'll see they intertwine with each other. They make up the same person who is God. Let's start with the, the center, the heart of all this. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's at the very center of these five. It's the very center of God's nature. God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. The heart of God is like an inexhaustible spring of water that bubbles up love and faithfulness at the top of a mountain. Or you could say that his heart is like a volcano that bursts, it burns so hot with the love of God that it blasts the top off the mountain and flows year after year with a lava of love and faithfulness. When God uses the word abounding, he wants us to understand that the resources of his love are not limited. In a way, he's like the federal government. Whenever there's a need, he could just print more money to cover it. But the difference is that God has an infinite treasury, an infinite treasury of golden love to cover all the currency he prints. The U.S. government is in a dream world. God banks very realistically on the infinite resources of his deity. The sheer magnificence 
of God means that he doesn't need to fill up any deficiency in himself. Instead, his infinite self-sufficiency spills over in love to us who need him. We can bank on his love precisely because we believe in the absoluteness of his existence, the sovereignty of his freedom, and the limitlessness of his power. So at the top, of, or at the, let's say at the center, stands the infinite abundance of God's love, pouring out for the good of his repentant people. He is slow to anger, and he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. When God says that he keeps steadfast love, the focus is on the durableness or the durability of his love. It lasts he, much more than the Energizer Bunny. His love lasts. It keeps on flowing. And I see a connection between the perseverance of God's love and the statement that God is slow to anger. Love cannot last where anger has a hair trigger. If God's anger had a hair trigger, his love would not last one day in my life, I guarantee. If rockets of wrath shot out from God's eyes every time I sinned, I would have been blown to smithereens before I got out of bed this morning. But he shouts on Mount Sinai, I am slow to anger. He holds back his wrath by the reins of his love. He is long-suffering. He is extraordinarily patient. And so he keeps steadfast love. He guards it and it preserves. He is slow to anger. says he's merciful and forgiving. If God is slow to anger, even though we give him ample reason to be extremely angry with us because of our sin, then he must be very merciful and forgiving. Merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The reason God is slow to anger is not that he doesn't notice our sin, but that he forgives it. There's a difference and not just some kinds of sin. For those of you who feel there's a category of sin that's beyond God's forgiveness, please submit your own opinion to God's word and repent of holding that opinion and receiving God's word. The reason God used all three Hebrew words for sin uh, here is to show that all sorts and degrees of sin are forgivable. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He piles them up to make plain what he means. There are no categories of unforgivable sins. The only sin that is unforgivable is the sin that is unrepentable. If you can repent and turn from your sin, you can be forgiven. Now I just want to wrap things up with this reminder and this invitation. Jesus Christ 
came into this world to confirm that God is just who he said he was on Mount Sinai. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, steadfast in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Turn from your sin this morning. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you will find a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. If somebody demands of you, or perhaps you demand of yourself, how do you know that's the way God is? You can answer with this, because Jesus Christ lived it and sealed it with his own blood. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, if there are any here who have thought that somehow they were beyond the reaches God's love and mercy and grace. Any who have felt that you would not have anything to do with them, speak to their hearts your invitation to turn and come to you and to know that you love them, you will forgive them, and that you will welcome them into your loving arms. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.